looking at 1 Thessalonians this morning, 2 Thessalonians tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We are reminded through the singing of these songs and uh, through the devotional thoughts uh, before the Lord's Supper that we have just partaken in, that Father, it's through Your loving kindness and Your compassion that iniquity has been atoned for and that our whole identity has been changed that we are no longer Your enemies, but Your children. We pray, Father, that all that that conversion entails will never be lost on us. But that we will seek, Father, to, to live a life that is worthy of this great grace that You have poured out on us each and every day. Not only to bring us into Your presence, Father, but to sustain us each day. Thank You for forgiveness. And thank You for Your Spirit that is in us, sanctifying us, helping us, Father, each day, degree by degree, to be conformed to the image, to the likeness of Your Son, Jesus. We pray that as we think about the words of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, that, that in our hearing it and that in our seeing it, that we, will not only, that we will not only lay the words up in our minds, Father, and in our hearts, but that these words will change us. That with deep conviction, Father, we we will hear them and allow them to do their work in our lives. To this end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles up to 1 Thessalonians. Or open your iPad up and and squiggle your finger a little bit to get to 1 Thessalonians. Or your your iPhone. Just any of those things that you have that you can open up your Bible and read 1 Thessalonians. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Inside of the announcement sheet, you're going to find an outline that you can use as we go through this. Tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at the uh, the counterpart to 1 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians. And, uh, and primarily going to be looking at, at some of that second chapter tonight. want to begin, up here on the screen we have uh, the statement that we're using at the beginning of these lessons, this Holy Word series of lessons where we start in Genesis and we're going through every book of the Bible. We finish the Old Testament. We're now in the New Testament. By the, the end of next month, we will have studied every book of the Bible in one year. And the statement that we use to kind of give us parameters and give us a way of a framework in which to think about the message of the Bible is this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not just a collection of, of myths or proverbs or, or um, you know, a compendium of ancient writings. What it is is a, a, a collection of writings that give us one story. It's the one story about God and about man and about what went wrong. When the thorns and the thistles were introduced into creation and what God is doing to put it back together again. Now, if you are a friend of Ben Bailey on Facebook, you probably saw this last Tuesday or Wednesday, this post that's up here on the screen that created a lot of chatter. 
And the statement that he posted on his Facebook page says, it is not happy people who are thankful, it is thankful people who are happy. Now that is something that you could probably say about Paul. That that was true of Paul. How does he start most of his letters? Think about Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 that says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4 where he says, I always, what church? Thank. There's thankfulness in his heart to God for all of the, the, the people that made up the church in Corinth. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. We always what? Thank God. We always thank God the Father for our, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Now, does anybody want to hazard a guess as to how Paul begins his first letter to the Thessalonians? Look at verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, uh, this is not what the sermon is about, but you could actually think about this the rest of the day, right? About thankfulness for the church and how not only do you pray for the church, but in your prayers, thank God for the church and for this church. But that's not what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to look at the book in its entirety. Let me begin with a little bit of history about it. Luke tells in the writing of the book of Acts, he tells how Paul planted the church in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Paul is on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, right after that Jerusalem conference. You remember that, that Paul and, and, and Barnabas got a little uh, bent with each other and they go their separate ways. They're kind of having an argument, a significant discussion over John Mark. Barnabas takes John Mark, goes in one direction. Paul takes Silas. He's going to be Paul's comrade now. And they go off on this journey beginning in Acts chapter 15 and verse 40. They hit Lystra and they pick up Timothy in Acts chapter 16. By the time they get to Troas, they add Luke to the entourage. That's in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, where we begin to have these, these we passages. Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, is now including himself because he's, he's in the story himself, physically and, and literally. And so he says that not just Paul and, and Barnabas or Paul and Silas, but we, including himself. Uh, they, from Philippi, where they leave Luke, they head southwesterly in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, to Thessalonica. And Paul does what he always does when he arrives in one of these cities in Asia Minor, anywhere in the Roman Empire. He tries to find a synagogue, and he finds a synagogue there in Thessalonica. And for three consecutive Sabbaths, he preaches to the people that make up that synagogue. And those sermons that he preaches on those three consecutive Saturdays, those three consecutive Sabbaths, are, make up a three-point outline. First, the Old Testament Scripture taught that the Messiah would die, that He would have to suffer, and that He would be resurrected. Point number two, that Jesus of Nazareth experienced the death, burial, and the resurrection. Therefore, the third point is Jesus is the Messiah. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of Hebrews, there were a lot of Jewish people, and there were a lot of Gentiles who were God-fearers who attended that synagogue that believed and became members of Christ's body. But as happened in all of these cities... The, 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 uh, the, the establishment of the church is not going to be without its, its opposition. And there were some Hebrew folk that in opposition to what Paul was doing inside of that synagogue, they rise up and they recruit what looks like a gang of thugs to take Paul and Silas and the entourage out. And they go to a fellow's house by the name of Jason one night, and they, they're looking for Paul and Silas, and, and they're not there. 
And so what does this gang do? They drag Jason and some of the believers in the church in Thessalonica before the city leaders. Uh, in some of your translations, it may say magistrates. The literal word in Greek is the polytarchs, the, the, the leaders of the city, and they level a charge at Jason and these other disciples of Jesus. They say in Acts 17, verse 6, these men, talking about Paul and Silas and the other brothers, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Well, it doesn't look like things are going to go very well for Jason and his friends, but they are released on bail. And they get back to the house, and they tell Paul and Silas what has happened. And Paul and Silas have to be smuggled out of the town, where they head to Berea, and then Paul heads off to Athens. But the church in Thessalonica that he loves and that he has spent uh, time with and, and is worried about, they begin to occupy his thoughts. Well, Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul in Athens where he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Saul, uh, uh, Silas is probably headed back to Philippi about this time. And then Timothy, after going to Thessalonica, reunites with Paul in Corinth where Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, there's a reference there of being in Corinth and writing this letter back, which now brings us to the letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And at the beginning of that letter, Paul writes these words, Our what? Our what, church? Gospel. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with, say it, power, with the Holy Spirit, and with... Deep conviction. When you read 1 Thessalonians, what you begin to read about is a church that in Paul's mind was exemplary. It became a model, became an example. What you have in 1 Thessalonians is the description of a church that is deeply impacted by the gospel. This is a church that Paul says, wow, the gospel really got into your heart and into your mind and into your, into your soul, and it really changed you. Now, what does a church that is impacted by the gospel look like? Number one, the church is known for faith and hope and love. The church is known for faith and hope and love. Do you know, and I, I don't know why, I, you know, it seems so silly. It's nearly uh, insulting to say it. But every church has a reputation. Every church has a reputation. Now, some churches have good reputation, some churches not so great. And I've often wondered how the good news, how, how the great news of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done in the death, burial, and resurrection, freeing us from, from sin. Therefore, you know, because of the forgiveness of our sins, we have been freed from sin and have been freed from sin. We are, have been delivered from death in order to live forever with, with the Christ and, and with God. How is it, I've often wondered, the good news of the gospel can produce a group of people who seem like they were weaned on sauerkraut, but it happens. You walk into the fellowship, and nobody is very friendly. The place seems a little dour. There's, there's a lack of joy. There's, 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 there's a lot of stiffness. There's aloofness. There's, 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 there's a lot of, of coldness. You know, friends, reputations don't just happen, they are earned. 
Now, here's the reputation on the flip side of that of the church in Thessalonica, the reputation that they're cultivating. Look at verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and love and hope. You know, Christians, disciples of Jesus are people who have been changed by the Gospel. And because their lives have been changed by the Gospel, their lives are, are reoriented. They, they, they follow a different compass. They follow a different, a, a, a different guideline. There's, there's a different direction in their life. They're completely reoriented. And true faith in God leads to activity that reflects God in the life of the disciples. That's one of the most basic teachings that Jesus gave His disciples at the very beginning of His ministry and would talk about it over and over and over and over again. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, right there at sort of the middle of the fifth chapter, He said, you know what disciples are like? Disciples are like light. Like a, like a city set on the hill. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're not doing it in order to get the thanks. We're not doing it in order to get the glory. We do our good deeds in such a way as disciples of Jesus. We do these good deeds in such a way that we don't get the thanks, but He gets the glory. That means that something of the gospel has taken place inside of our hearts and inside of our mind, inside of our soul, in such a way that we are freed up from guilt and fear and, and selfishness and greed and these kinds of things in order for us to do these acts in such a way that it really points to the Father. And when people look at our life, they see something about what the Gospel is all about. Now a question. What would you do differently if our church's reputation depended on you? When people interact with you on a daily basis, whether it's at work, you know, some kind of a commercial transaction, a supermarket, wherever it might be, or in the neighborhood, or, or in the, 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 the corridors of school, do they sense faith and hope and love? I mean, what would it be like? I mean, one day, when, when people in our community when, when people in our community say, you know, I, I don't really know much about that church that meets over there at 410 and, and Wurzbach, Starcrest. But I'm so thankful that they're a part of our community. I'm, I'm so thankful. I, I, I don't know what I would have done if it had not been for those people at MacArthur Park. And what gets that going in us is love. It's not just the faith, but it's also the love. In, in the church, love is more than just an emotion. Paul says it's a labor. And when you think about it, that's exactly what not only did Jesus talk about it, but He also showed it. John chapter 13. You know, in Luke chapter 22, His disciples are arguing with one another over who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the preeminent one. They're jockeying for position. By the time you get to John chapter 13, which is John's version of what's happening at the Lord's Supper, Jesus knows that He's going back to the Father. All power has been given to Him. He has status and power in order to show the full extent of His love. What does He do? Zap them? Does He reveal His glory to them in such a way that they bow down before Him as, 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 as the, the Gentiles who lorded over their subjects? No. In love, showing the full extent of His love, 
He gets up from his place of honor, gets up from the place of, of privilege at the table, and divests himself of the clothing that he had worn to that meal and puts on the clothing of a servant and then begins to do the most servile task of all the ancient world, which was the washing of feet. And they are completely stunned. They're completely stunned. Now, they might have washed each other's feet if push came to shove. And they would most likely have washed his feet. But for him to wash their feet completely stunned him. And then as he's unpacking what this all means, he tells his disciples, you know, that example you've just seen, you're to follow that. And then in verse 34, he says, a new command I'm going to give you, love one another. Now that's, that's really not the new command. Loving your neighbor as yourself had always been around, but he's going to bring it to a different standard. He's going to raise the bar. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the 13th verse, the very last verse, these three, these three remain, say them with me, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, say it, is love. The church that Jesus came to build is known for its love. And it's also known for hope. Uh, a professor at ACU, is, uh, James Thompson, says from time to time that to be a church is to survive obstacles. To be a church is to survive obstacles. And one of the ways that it does that is to look to the future and to see what it is that God is directing His people toward. Question. When you think of eternal life, when you think about life everlasting in the presence of God, what does that do to you? What does it do to you to think about a place where you're going to be in the presence of God and, and, and with brothers and sisters where there is no anxiety, no terror, no confusion, no derangement, no lives in shambles, no anguish, no despair? Is faith, hope, and love the reputation that we have in this community? Number two, the church is unashamed of the gospel. Church is absolutely unashamed of the gospel. You know the word conversion. It's used all the time. Pretty common word these days. It means, and you know what it means, it means that when you're, when you're converting something, you're changing the character, you're changing the state. Now, in football, it's what happens when a third down becomes a first down. It's what happens when you're traveling in a foreign country and you take an American dollar, a greenback, and it becomes a Dutch mark or a franc or a heal. It's what happens when you travel abroad and a yard has to become a meter. It's also what happens to a human being when they believe the gospel with all their heart. Paul says to this church in Thessalonica, chapter 1, verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from what? Idols. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who what? Rescues us from the coming wrath. Then if you go back to verse 6, He says you welcomed the message. You welcomed the message. Not just because it was convenient or because it was interesting or because it was easy to do, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
You know, everyone has an idea of what an idol is, especially when they see it in somebody else's life. But here's the thing. In three decades plus of ministry, no one has ever come into my office and said, Preacher Mark, can you help me? I'm an idolater. Preacher Mark, can you help me and, and pray for me and counsel me because I'm having a problem with idolatry. Let me give you a way to help identify an idol in your life. An idol is what you turn to when you're scared. An idol is what you turn to in times of trouble. It's the money. The money's going to be able to protect me. I'm going to be able to buy my way out of something. Or it's pleasures. The pleasures are going to help me forget. Or the person. An idol can be a relationship. It can be a person. The person who's going to save me. If I'm... If I'm linked up with this person, relating to this person, they're somehow going to save me. Or it might be your image, you know, how you look. Beauty that I will be able to hide behind. But the bottom line is that if money is the idol, it will enslave you. And if pleasure is the idol, it will at some point devour you and destroy you. If the person is the idol, then they will disappoint you. If it's image, it will fade. If it's beauty... It will, it, will, it will fade. It will fail you. One of the most liberating moments in a person's life is when they are converted from the idol that will enslave them and disappoint them and fail them and ultimately destroy them to be converted to the true and the living God. It is a conversion from failure and futility to fullness of life. And you never get over that. You never get over the moment when when like, like, like Saul in Acts chapter 9, who later becomes Paul, you know, the scales drop from your eyes. It's being blind all your life. And then John chapter 9, the, the blind man at, you know, who's, who, is, who is given his sight by Jesus, who says, you know, uh, the crazy thing is, I was once blind. But now I, you say it. See. Paul says of this church, and the Thessalonians never got over that. Imagine, yeah, it's just ancient world, you know, a tough life, a hard life. And, and, and Paul comes and proclaims to them the gospel, the good news. They never got over it. In fact, Paul will say back in chapter 1, verse 8, he said, the Lord's, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. The Gospel emanated forth out of these conversions. The Word went forth. The Word went to work on the lives of these, these people. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, We also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, like a philosophy or an axiom or something pithy. You did not accept it as a human word, but as it actually is, the Word, finish it, of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Number three, the church also embodies that Gospel. It's not ashamed of it, and it embodies that gospel. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And this basically is chapter 4 and chapter 5, and Paul gives them some areas. He says uh, in, in chapter 4, holiness. It's about a life of holiness. It's the same kind of thing that, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, the one who called you is holy, so therefore you too are to be holy. And in chapter 4, he says that holiness is kind of seen in the self-control, especially in the area of sexual behavior. I love the way that J.B. Phillips, the trans, his translation from the 1940s has it. He says, you've got to have a clean cut with immorality. And in chapter 4, he says, you know, you have to love each other. And you have, chapter 5, you have to respect your spiritual leaders and live in peace and warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, do not pay wrong for wrong, be kind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray continually, pray without ceasing, pray all the time. Verse 18, give thanks continually. Verse 21, hold on to the good. Avoid the bad. The church embodies the gospel and then finally, and we'll close with this, and there's so much more we could talk about. But we'll end with this. The church lives without fear. The church lives without fear. You know, people are afraid of a lot of things. But Paul, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, addresses two of the big ones, death. People fearful of death. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Brothers and sisters, do not be, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, one of the things that's pretty important to make clear here is that Paul never says that grief is a sin. It's not. It is the normal response to a loss of some sort. When Jesus loses his best friend to death in John chapter 11, and he gets to that, that, that tomb where his friend Lazarus has been dead for three days, what does he do? What does he do, church? He cries. He weeps. I figured that a church's size, we would, we would have memorized the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. And he wept to the point that the people around him said, look how much he loved him. Grief comes at a loss. And it's not a sin. But what he does say is that even though death is a loss, death in light of the gospel is not to be feared. And he gives a formula in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, we believe that Jesus died and was resurrected. Which means that Jesus did not die, hit death, and bounced back into this life, but He went right through the middle of death and came out on the other side. A resurrected life. The first of the resurrected lives. And that that resurrected Jesus, what we believe, will return one day. And we believe that the faithful will be resurrected. And we believe that we will be with the Lord forever. But then He talks about judgment. Death and judgment. Death, people are afraid of death and judgment. It was no different in Thessalonica. He ends with judgment. You know, there's always someone who wants to make judgment really bad. You know, they just, the judgment has to be like a hammer, like an anvil falling on top of somebody. There's a new book out. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure if it's been released, but it, it's entitled 41, and it's about George H.W. Bush, 41st president. It's a memoir that's written by his son, Bush 43. 
And when you read the book, one of the things that stands out is that both of these Bushes had an incredible sense of humor that sometimes was not seen by the general populace. And inside of this book, uh, 43 gives 41's one of his favorite jokes. And the joke goes like this. There's this 80-year-old guy goes into a supermarket and he shoplifts. He's caught. He's arrested, taken before the judge, and the judge does not want to sentence the old-timer, but he doesn't want to let it slide by, so he has this idea. He goes, hey, uh, fella, how many, what did you steal? And the old-timer says, a can of peaches. He goes, yeah. How many peaches were in that can? He goes, six. He goes, okay, six days in jail. And before the hammer can come down, the gavel can come down on the wood, the old-timer's wife stands up and says, whoa, 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 wait. He also stole a can of peas. There's always someone that wants to make it worse. Paul says, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. It's not important. That part's not important. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says, don't be fretful about dates. No one knows. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Destruction will come suddenly. But, verse 5, you are all children of the, say it, light. And children of the day. And then in verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. That's a fact. But what does it mean? He died for us so that... Whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Amen. You know, Christ lived the life that we should have lived, and Christ died the death that we should have died in order through our faith in Him. Because we can't generate the righteousness. We can't generate the goodness. We can't generate the life. But because of faith in His faithfulness, faith in Him, we have life. And when you think about it, the reason that we have faith in Him is because at some point it dawned on us that we were absolutely hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. You know, as, as hard as we might try on our best day, we can still look back, if we're honest, and at all self-aware, that we're really not that great. Our thought life, the things that we want to say, but our filters hold us back, that the older we get, sometimes those filters are not quite as strong. And we think that because we don't say them, that we're okay. The bottom line, hopeless. But He's the one that gives us hope. And not only that, He loved us when we were unlovely in order to make us a beauty. And there's just something about being loved like that, that that transforms us, melts us. It radically revolutionizes our life in such a way that as all of that love is poured into us, it somehow makes us lovers of other people. And our lives are marked by faith and hope and love. If you've never experienced that kind of life, if you've never, ever, ever really known what to do with that piece of information that, you know, as, as much as I try to get my life going in the right direction, it's not going in the right direction. As much as I, I try to make it a great life, it's really not that great of a life. It's, 
if you've never connected to the faith and the hope and the love. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And while we're singing this song, we want you to come down and talk to them about how that can happen in your life. Let's stand and let's praise God together. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring.